I'm someone who's been in fellowship for the last 40 years now, and hopefully that's not because I'm twice as dumb as everyone else, but maybe. twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and pontificates on recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight, we have Josh and Nyan from The Filtrate and three special guests. Dr. Steve Sozio is an associate professor at Johns Hopkins in medicine and epidemiology, and he's the senior author on tonight's Jason paper. Steve, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, thanks for having me, Joel. It's a pleasure to be here on tonight's podcast, um, and it's a pleasure to be talking about this article with all of you. Steve, do you, are you on Twitter? I know you are. I, I am. It's uh, at Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Sozio, S-O-Z-I-O, all one word. Excellent, excellent. And we have uh, Jade Tico, is an assistant professor at the University of Texas McGovern Medical School. She's also the associate program director there for the Nephrology Fellowship and is an NSMC intern. So it's, she's simultaneously an intern and the pro- associate program director. And Jade wrote the summary for this week's uh, NFJC and hosted the chat. I mean, it was it was an incredible effort. Jade, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Jade Teekle. I'm down here in Houston, Texas. My Twitter handle is jmteekle. At jmteekle. Mm-hmm. And we have Curtis Pivert, who's the data science officer at the American Society of Nephrology. Welcome, Curtis. Thanks very much. I am really happy to be here and glad to uh, be with Steve to discuss our research. So we are now getting close to 18 months into the COVID pandemic. And you know, it was kind of like a hierarchy of needs. And early on, it was, do we have enough ventilators? And then do we have enough dialysis? And then do we have enough nurses and dialysis techs and doctors to take care of everybody? And we're now kind of at the phase that we're starting to look at second order and third order effects of the pandemic. And one of those is what has been the effect on our trainees? What has this pandemic, which has really interrupted and changed everything that we do in the hospital, how is it affecting uh, the people that we're depending on to be uh, the nephrologists of the future? And this is a question not only on my mind and a lot of people's mind, but the ASN was very conscious of it. And that led uh, to this survey. Steve, can you give us a little background? Like, how, How did this survey come about? Can you kind of give us a backstory there? Sure. So since 2014, the ASN has made a priority to survey fellows about their training experience and their future job prospects. And that was originally conducted by the George Washington Institute. And then since 2018, Curtis Pavera and I have been leading the ASN data subcommittee to really understand some of those key trends in nephrology. And so that's where this started from is the annual ASN fellows survey. And like everything in the pandemic, things were put on hold. So instead of doing the survey in the spring, we moved it into the fall and that gave us the opportunity to understand not only some of those job characteristics and fellowship characteristics, but also understand how our fellows were responding to the pandemic. 
Yeah, I can't imagine you'd have gotten much participation if this had gone out in April. I mean, at least not from the hot spots, right? I mean, no, no one had any kind of bandwidth to do anything like that. I think it was also hard for members of the Workforce and Training Committee and the data subcommittee who helped run this to have organized a survey at that time. And, and while we're early in the episode, I should say I have conflicts of interest all over the place for this paper. And this is way outside of my normal zone of biochemistry and structural biology. But the ASN funds my fellowship work. And I was a member of the ASN Workforce and Training Committee as an intern in 2018. And then Steve and Curtis were kind enough to invite me to stick around as part of the ASN data subcommittee. So I was also part of designing the study and, and talking about the results. But I think at that time in March and April, when the survey would have normally gone out, we were all so deep in the weeds that no one was able to get their head above their own institution or their own patients. And really, by the time the summer rolled around, we had a little bit of bandwidth to think about what are the important questions we should ask of our fellows and, and how their training's been impacted here. Okay, okay. So besides the timing and clearly questions about COVID, how, how was this survey different than the previous workforce surveys that you've been doing? Yeah, so I'll turn things over to uh, Curtis for that. I think top of mind was really concerned about what is happening with well-being of fellows and how is the pandemic and all those changes in terms of how fellows interact with patients and whether they're even interacting with patients and the widespread adoption of telehealth, trying to understand how all of these, as well as changes in how fellow conferences were being conducted, how that's impacting their preparedness for independent practice, how that's affecting their well-being, not only professional well-being, but also their well-being at home, their work-life balance, their relationships with their family, but also with their friends. And that was really one of the reasons why we did conduct the survey, because there was widespread concern across a large variety of stakeholders about the well-being and also the education of the next generation of nephrologists. That is why we incorporated the Resident Well-Being Index instrument into our survey. This was developed by Dr. Tate Shanafelt, who gave an excellent plenary at Kinney Week 2020 Reimagined. And his work is obviously very focused on the well-being of physicians. And it's a very comprehensive measure that not only is able to assess burnout, but also to assess other psychological stressors and the potential for making medical errors and suicidal ideation. Yeah, and, and Curtis mentioned about some of our, our key stakeholders. And so that really was the impetus for some of these things that we were looking at. So you know, the ASN Workforce and Training Committee were interested in these questions. ASN Council were interested in these questions. And clearly our kidney community were interested in these questions about what fellowship was looking like what the training experience was looking like, and also what those future nephrologists and nephrology faculty, uh, both at academic institutions and in practice, were going to be looking like. And this work wouldn't be possible without those key stakeholders, as well as our data subcommittee that really spearheaded some of these main efforts to put this together. Yeah, I, the first two years of my fellowship were kind of standard looking normal nephrology fellowship of the 2010s. And the last two years of my fellowship have looked entirely different. And I think these kind of surveys really help highlight the changes in practice, and we'll talk about these as we go through the results of the study. Okay, well, let's start with the methods. Jay, do you want to run us through the methods of the study? So the main idea behind this study was to create a survey that would in part incorporate some of the 
annual survey that the ASN looks at for all of the fellows in training as well as recent graduates and looked at adult and pediatric as well as combined adult pediatric fellows. So Steve, when you had previously done that, had you done pediatrics? So it hasn't always been included, but that's one of the things that we wanted to add is is really include our pediatric counterparts just because of many of their experiences are shared with ours as are our faculty. So that was a key part that we added over these past several years. I think we're also seeing similar workforce trends in the pediatric community as we are to the adult nephrology community. We're seeing the same difficulty in filling slots. So I think understanding the peds and adults workforce are, are really important to the workforce and training committee of the ASM. And how was recent grads defined? Is that you know, a year out of fellowship, five years, I mean, what was the definition? That's like folks who are two months out of fellowship in August. So they're like still on the listserv. So we're surveying them too. If you had done the survey at the regular time, Correct. they would have been captured as fellows. And now they're just being captured as recent grads. So the survey included some of the questions from the annual survey, but then it also included new questions to determine what effect the pandemic had had on their education, their professional development, if they felt the pandemic had affected their career trajectory or had delayed them in some way. And then new to this survey was also the resident well-being index that had not been included on prior surveys. Can you teach me about the resident well-being index? I, I never taken this, don't know anything about it. The only surveys I've taken is what Hogwarts house are you in? So what? what? Nyan, you're totally Slytherin. Am I right? You're Slytherin? No, I, I'm definitely Hufflepuff. Back to back times. <laughs> Aren't all... Never mind. Aren't all nephrologists should be Hufflepuff? <laughs> right? Isn't that the thing? I think so. Uh, okay. 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 I get it. It hurts, but I get it. Yeah. I don't get it. I'm sorry. My kids really never got into Harry Potter, and I only read the first book. So the Resident Wellbeing Index includes questions that really help define quality of life, fatigue, the likelihood of committing medical errors. It has a lot of questions in it that really help look at how the fellows are how their well-being is. And it's scored based on a one to seven range with the higher score being an indicator of more distress. The distress threshold is defined as a score greater than five. It is a really comprehensive measure, but it's only seven questions. And most likely all of you have already taken it because it's implemented in a lot of health systems. It was developed by Dr. Tate Shanafelt, who licenses the well-being index through Mayo Clinic. It's only seven questions long, but is able to comprehensively assess all of those things that Jade had mentioned. Can you just give us a sense of how this is validated? It was developed by people that developed MASLEC Burnout Index. And so, yes, it is validated across a wide variety of cohorts. The version that we used, the Resident Wellbeing Index, was validated in a cohort of 1,700 residents. One thing I did want to mention about the distress threshold, I didn't say this before, but so with the distress threshold, with the score greater than five, the part of that validation is that it's associated with a threefold higher risk for poor quality of life and a fourfold higher risk for burnout. One thing to keep in mind is that, again, you know, this is six months plus into the pandemic, but that being said, people are still tired or potentially tired during this. And so one of the challenges that we had is we wanted to make the survey long enough to have adequate results, but not too long that we're going to have survey fatigue and not have people fill it out. So that was part of the challenge that we had. And again, helpful to have a committee that's 
providing great voices to really figure out what are the right questions to ask and also what are the right questions not to ask. So were there some standard questions that you normally ask that you had to bail because you were adding this other stuff? Yes, unfortunately. And, and, and again, some of those questions we're unfortunately bringing back here in the spring as we do the, the regularly scheduled annual fellow survey. So we're looking forward to seeing some of those questions back in action in the regular cycle like we usually would have. And, and, and this was distributed by email, I take it, or yeah, it was distributed. Smoke carrier pigeon. <laughs> it was distributed by email. It was sent out in the August to September range of 2020. Okay, okay. Steve Curtis, anything else we missed on the methods? Seems like a pretty straightforward. You sent out a survey, people answered it. You licensed some questions about burnout. And there was one other thing about the methods that we need to touch on. You guys measured the kind of the timing of peak pandemic for different cities. Yes. So the survey respondents were co-aggregated by their week of completion to the morbidity and mortality weekly report, and then geolocated based on the number of hospitalizations for that state. So you know when they fill out the survey, and then you could correlate that with how many hospitalizations due to COVID were at around that same time. And because we know their training program, we can get a geographic sense. So because the initial two waves of the pandemic were so geographic, we felt like it was important to at least understand if there were differences in the survey responses between folks who were in New York City versus who saw a ton of COVID volume early versus folks who were in maybe Arizona and didn't get quite as much volume quite as early. But also one of the key things that we were looking at in terms of timing is trying to time it so that we were getting people that had some recency of their experiences from the initial surge in March and April, that we didn't have any recall bias or reduced as much as possible that bias, but also we're not taxing people, hopefully at that point, before the massive surge concurrent with you know the onset of influenza. Right. You guys were September-ish, August, August September, September is when this thing was going mm-hmm. And, and if that's like a second wave time, like was that Texas so was I bad? Think, I think in, this is sort of like bleeding from methods and results because timing of the survey is like weirdly methods and results. Because it was August to September, we really had the first wave of New York and the Northeast in the rearview mirror or at least the first round of that awfulness in the rearview mirror. And then Texas in the Southeast was the second wave that was really just kind of winding down at that point. And then the third wave of everything going crazy everywhere in the winter had yet to come. We didn't really know that that was about to happen. That was more October, November. Okay. Okay. So Josh, hit us with some results. Sure. So I think the other thing to think about this timing, we, we've kind of covered this a little bit, but that the timing of this survey is different than the normal ASN Workforce and Training Committee survey, that it catches fellows instead of the spring time. It catches first-year fellows really at the beginning of their first year when things are pretty good and they haven't been burned out yet. It catches second years after they transitioned off the worst of the first year. They're no longer all inpatient all the time. And the recently graduated fellows are probably two, three months into their new jobs. So if there's like an apex of early nephrology training wellness, this may be it. And so there's a question of, are we biasing our results a little bit by the timing? In terms of the number of respondents, we had about an 80-20 adult versus pediatric nephrology fellow breakdown. And 
breaking down within the adult nephrology fellows, which were the majority of our respondents. They were about 50-50 U.S. medical graduates versus international medical graduates, and about 50-50 male and female. And those pretty much mirror the nephrology fellow trends that we see across the country. How many of them are DO versus MD? 50% American grads was higher than I thought. Yeah, I thought it was closer to 70 or 80% IMGs. I actually don't know what the, the U.S. versus IMG national trend is. I thought 50-50 sounded Steve, about what, right what, what to me, we, but... Uh, IMG, 64 to 65% usually, U.S. medical graduates, 35%, and DOs have been matching around like 5 to 10% of slots, but... Oh, tiny, tiny spots. I would say that our breakdown between men and women was 50-50, which mirrors the nephrology fellowship workforce. And the ethnic and geographic breakdown also is very similar to nephrology fellows across the country. You can see in the geography figure, figure one, that there's a lot of dots on the East Coast, but really there are a lot of fellowship programs on the East Coast, and that really mirrors the distribution of where fellows and fellowship programs are. And is a dot a responder or a dot a program that had a responder? So a dot is a program. No, dot dot is individual responders. And of course, there's going to be a lot of... uh, even even with jittering, there's going to be a lot of overlap. So those are individual respondents. Gotcha. That's actually a pretty cool map then. That is really cool. We, we spent a lot com- of time going back and forth about that map. It's a, it's a really cool data visualization map that Curtis really, really did is. the heavy lifting really on. Is. And then the colors of the confirmed cases at the – is that just cumulative cases? Cumulative cases as of August 4 when we were opening the survey. Cool. I'll tell you, I mean, that's a good figure one. I'm very, I'm very critical of figure one. That was well done. So I, I think Curtis had really touched on the things that we were interested in in nephrology training, and we really went to those questions first. We were interested in how programs did their education, their teaching, their didactic curriculum. And really unsurprisingly, most of these programs switched from in-person to virtual conferences. I think everyone who's been on a Zoom meeting, which is to say everyone is used to that idea by now, but back in... July and August, that seemed like a pretty novel kind of thing. I also thought it was impressive that people did move it, right? You have a new fellowship class coming in. It's hard to have a new bunch of fellows come in and say, we're not going to teach you anything because things are too crazy. Good luck and don't let anything bad happen while you're out there. And I think this is really like we're catching it after that June to July switchover has happened. The other thing here is that really much of the fellow learning comes in an experiential way with patient care. And so it was important for us to understand how patient care was working from a fellow perspective. And so we saw in in figure three that really most fellows were doing either all or some of their visits via telehealth for the outpatient world. And a majority of fellows, about 55% or so, were doing their inpatient consults by telehealth. And that's kind of striking, right? Like you're in the same hospital building as the sick person that you're seeing, and you're seeing them through an iPad. And imagining that two years ago is a crazy idea, but that's really where we were, or that was where some of our educational practices transitioned from early 2020 into this point in 2020. And this is where we're first starting to see some of the difference between graduates and current fellows. Again, graduates finished up in June, Current fellows are now in August and September, so clearly things continue to evolve from June all the way till September. 
And so that's why starting this figure and going into the next figure, which we'll get to shortly, we're starting to see some differences between those two groups. Yeah, especially that outpatient dialysis. A lot of differences there. Yeah, right? I, I think the other piece is that really fit a full 50% of fellows were not seeing patients for outpatient dialysis at that time, if I'm reading, if I'm remembering the data and reading the figure right, those are fifty four percent are suspended. Yeah, You're on hold from doing dialysis rounds as a fellow, and really that's a critical component of the outpatient second year curriculum for our fellows. So putting that on hold is a really big deal. But our graduating fellows who now have jobs, they're called nephrologists, have to go out and see dialysis patients as part of their job, as they're not able to put that on hold the same way that fellows are. You can remember where we were at the beginning of this pandemic. Not only were we worried about our own health, but we were worried about those healths of the patients that were most vulnerable. And having an outpatient dialysis unit with 20 plus patients per shift, everybody was worried whether it could be transmitted from patient to patient. So we were all minimizing staff, minimizing who needed to be there. And this survey confirms that our graduates weren't really experiencing that outpatient dialysis experience anymore. It was on hold, like many things during that early part of the pandemic. In figure four, we're really looking at how individual programs are dealing with their fellows' care of COVID-positive inpatients. Again, like, like Steve and Nyan had said, this is reflecting times when we were lacking PPE to have enough coverage that we could be safe and see patients. So we were cutting down drastically in the number of people going into patient rooms. And so here, only 35% of fellows reported that they were the ones seeing an in-person COVID-positive patient, whereas a full 55, 60-plus percent of fellows were not seeing those patients in person. They were either seeing them virtually from an iPad outside the room or talking to other teams, or just the faculty member was going into the room by themselves, but the fellow was staying outside the room. Now, I'm someone who started my fellowship at one program and has finished my fellowship at another program. And those two programs had very different approaches to how they've handled fellows taking care of COVID positive patients. So the program I was at before, fellows were all remote. Everyone was staying home, working from their apartments. And the program I'm in now, fellows were all in person, all seeing patients in person. And those are two drastically different ways of taking care of patients. And it's hard to understand how we get the same kind of nephrologists out from those two different models. We weren't even having attendings go in unless there was, you know, some reason to go in and physically examine the patient. So, you know, not only fellows, we, we, we didn't have attendings going in the rooms. At least in our ICUs, we did kind of a group where we would meet together with the ICU teams. And so in most cases, our faculty and fellows would not go in. It would just be usually the ICU attending and sometimes the ICU fellow. So I think something we're hearing even from the perspectives on this group on the podcast is that really every institution had a different way of doing this. And it wasn't clear if any of those were better or more effective or more PPE conserving or whatever was going on at that time. And we thought it was important as a group to get this information from all the programs, figure out what people were doing and what was working, and then to share that within the nephrology community about what we thought was a reasonable way to go ahead and take care of patients. This is, again, data we're collecting in the summer of 2020. We don't know that great COVID vaccines are right around the corner. We don't know that this isn't going to happen every winter for the next three or four years. And so understanding the the distribution of programs and what they're doing and communicating those results to other training program directors was a real priority. I think Curtis or Steve could probably talk more 
about how we really try to make a priority of getting this information out to other program directors before the winter surge time came. Yeah, essentially nobody knew what the hell they were doing and they were just trying to figure I mean, people were just trying to survive this, right? I mean, this is so early in the in the pandemic that people are just on high alert and, and, and just, you know, doing whatever they could to survive. I mean, yes and no. I mean, by September, it doesn't feel that early, you know, especially if you are in New York, it's already gone down. The numbers are pretty low. It's before your third wave. I mean, you know, certainly for some places it's like that, but for other places, you know, we had kind of figured it out and we'd gotten through that storm. We were starting to see patients in person. I, I think there were regions of the country that had not had that experience that folks in the Northeast and folks in the Midwest and folks in the Southeast had had. And so I think sharing that data around other institutions was, was a priority for us to get that information out to other programs. Okay. Figure five. What is this type of figure called? It's super useful way to look at this data, by the way. It's so cool. I, I, it just looks like, a, like, a, like lifesavers to me. But it's such a great way to see it, right? Because you can quickly yeah. see which, thing, which things are yeah. more are better and which things are worse. It's the best way I can think of to accurately depict Likert scale data so that you can see the vast majority of the, the weighting that's in neutral in the middle. But then you see when you're doing it rank ordered like this, the way that I did in the figure, you can see which is up, which is down. Yeah, it's very cool. And one of the things that we thought about by doing a figure like this is that just like we've all seen in this pandemic, there's things that have clearly gotten worse because of the pandemic, but clearly other things that have been opportunities that weren't there before the pandemic. And so we wanted to really capture some of that, what was better, what was worse as a result of this pandemic for our fellows. And a figure that's outlined like this really does show for each of these individual things, how each of our fellows felt it was getting better or worse and giving an aggregate score across that. Who thinks that there's better case variety? That's the most ridiculous thing in the world. There was a, there was a, a dozen reps of fellows that thought there was more case variety. Come on now, guys. <laughs> I, I think the thing that was striking about that, what's really nice about presenting the data this way is that you can see the, the majority of people don't feel like things are really better or worse. Most of the things are kind of the same, or they're a little better, or they're a little worse. But most things are not much better or much worse either way. So maybe there's a slightly decreased case variety and there's a slightly increased sense of community or, or relationship with mentors. But on the whole, people feel like their fellowship experience is preparing them for professional advancement in a very similar way as they think fellowship would have prepared them a year or two years or five years before. Well, and then the other interesting thing is looking at board prep, which was on this rank order is the second worst thing, the thing that was harmed the most by this. And then we look at the board passing rate, and it was significantly better than the previous year. That these fellows, they got slapped in the face, and they stood up, and they they slapped the COVID back and had a solid response. So to the I think I've taken lip from you, Joel, about being a part of the worst class of nephrology fellows in history based on our USMLE scores and our match rates and all that stuff. And I took boards in 2020, and so I feel like I can stop taking that kind of lip from you now, because I, you know, it, our board score pass rates, granted, are not great. They are still the lowest of any specialty within internal medicine, but they went from the low 70s, which is where they were last year, up to about 80% or so this year. So definitely an improvement, and really in a group that has had every potential excuse to not study because they've been so busy taking care of really sick people. They saw a lot more PD and a lot more sled than people before as well. So they yes, were really they ready for that. a lot of time at home. Yeah. It's interesting, the perception, oh, I don't have enough time to study. And then in the reality, they did great. 
Except they couldn't. Except they couldn't go out to bars and stuff. So they're like, oh, I'll study. No big deal. Resident Wellbeing Index. I know uh, Curtis had some thoughts on this. We had hypothesized. You didn't have to hypothesize. You just knew. I mean, anyone who was around anticipated that we would observe a high rate of you know burnout among current nephrology fellows, just given everything that they've gone through. You know, since the initiation of the the first surge in March. What we were very surprised at was the low rate of fellows that met the distress threshold on the resident well-being index, which is that greater than or equal to five on a, out of a range of zero to seven. It was only 15% of the fellows that participated, which was lower than the validation cohort for the, for the actual survey instrument, which was 20% among a cohort of 1,700 residents. And, and so, Curtis, just to clarify, that validation cohort of that showed twenty percent of residents had did met this distress threshold. That was in like the normal times, like the pre times when there was not a pandemic and when you weren't getting redeployed and when you weren't being asked to like do emergency PD on people in the middle of the night. Like that was like the okay baseline stat- status was twenty percent, and now nephrology fellows are telling us only fifteen percent. Only, which is still too many, but 15% of them are meeting that distress threshold. But I'm assuming in the validation studies, there's no subgroup of nephrologists that's across the board for all specialties? No, there is not. In the instrument that you purchased, they do not do a breakdown of who comprised the cohorts of residents. But not only was it lower than that, it was also lower than Dr. Varun Agarwal's study, which was published in JSON, looking at burnout. And this was a extramural research study that was embedded within the ASN Nephrology Fellow Survey. And they used MASLAC burnout index, and they found uh, that 30% of the participants met the MASLAC burnout index. And what year was that study done? That was the 2018 That's 2018. It's 30% different scale, but they're supposed to be both validated. And now in 2020, it's 15%. But I mean, 15%, I mean, if I, I don't have data to back it up, but I I put money on that. If you ask a lot of these questions to the general public, like my neighbors, it would be more than 15%. So the question is you're asking now in May of 2021, but the question was, how were people doing back in August of 2020? And like the general public, most people were kind of chilling, doing okay. And really, it was just people who'd seen the worst of it who were like losing their minds like like us. And I, I honestly, I think we all thought those numbers would be a lot worse. And we were surprised at how not awful those numbers were, even though that's 15% of all fellows, that's one in six being burned out as bad. We thought those numbers would be worse. And and again, just to kind of hit that point home, you know, those numbers being somehow better than what nephrology fellows looked like several years ago. And not only that, better than what internal medicine residents presumably were in the validation cohort. So if that really is true, that would suggest that there's something about this experience that our fellows are not only surviving, but thriving better than their peer groups from the prior years and also internal medicine residents which is a shocking result just to see that part of things. And has have you seen anybody else publish with this BWRI during the pandemic? It's just kind of the first data looking at this question during in the in the shadow of the pandemic. I can't say for certain, 
when I did the lit review, I did not find any other studies that came up, nor did any of the studies that Josh had uncovered use this instrument to assess burnout. Yeah, we both did a deep dive here and couldn't find any other folks who are using this index in particular, but it would be interesting to see if more stuff's come out since then. I'm surprised, right? I, I mean, I just think that, that anybody who's interested in burnout would just want to dive right into this, this you know, once in a, in, a, in a lifetime stressor on, on medical residents. Why would you... This would be their time to- We shine, hope right? it's once in a lifetime. We're, we were also pretty fast. I think we really got our survey out and turned it into a manuscript and got it back out fast. So maybe over the next six months or a year, we'll see more things trickle out. And they also didn't attend the Kidney Week session on the same topic. So maybe that's why uh, no one else has included this in We're this. super ahead of the curve. Too often, we think of burnout being work. People don't get burnout because they have a lot of work. It's they find their work meaningless. And I think during the surge of the pandemic, you were working really hard, but your work was essential and it was valued. And people were calling you because the patient was going to die with that potassium of eight if the nephrologist didn't come and save them. It felt hard but at the same time, rewarding. That's how I felt. And I kind of felt the, the fellows were along with us. And it was kind of an all hands on the on deck. And, and this was this was our time to, to, to really pull together and do good work. I agree with that. And when I mentioned those multidisciplinary rounds that we had, you know, ICU was there, nephrology was there, occasionally cardiology. But you, like you said, we were there and we were involved in a lot of those difficult cases. And by we, I mean nephrology. Well, for for- yeah, it was. A, we were an important part of the team. For some physicians, this was the Super Bowl, right? You're like, man, I've been training my whole life for this. This is a hopefully a once in a lifetime thing. I'm coming in. I have the tools to save people's lives. I mean, you know, I I can see it go both ways. And and I think we see that in the survey results of whether fellows would recommend nephrology as a specialty to graduating medical students and residents. Those numbers are higher. Talk about that, Josh. Yeah, yeah. so that's a regular survey repeating question. I think that's probably. If I can have a favorite question in the Nephrology Fellows survey that we do every year, that's my favorite question because it's a it's a yes, no, and then it has an open-ended, tell us about why you love nephrology or tell us about why you would steer people away from nephrology. And so if you have some time and want to go back and read the old reports, those are either like poetry or like gut punch responses for all of us. And I think it's worth reading them. But in this year's survey, in the COVID survey, we see a higher number of respondents, 87%, who are recommending nephrology as a specialty choice over the 70 to 80% range that we normally see in the regular pre-COVID times. I was really happy to see that. As far as sort of the individuals that were distressed, we probably think that distress and recommending nephrology do go together. And so that is one of those clues that's there is if Obviously, if you're distressed, you're less likely to recommend the field of nephrology. And so like Jade said, it really is comforting that the number of individuals that are recommending nephrology is going up. This is the best rate that we've had in years of actually asking this question. I wonder if this is the highest you have. This is in, in the years we've been this this as year. As long as we've answered asked this question, this is the highest percent of people who would recommend nephrology. Again, it's not as high as some other medical specialties within internal medicine, but it's still the highest we've ever had in nephrology. Is in the middle of the COVID pandemic, people are seeing the value in the work they do and recommending it to other people. And now I'll invoke Jade. We hope that this was the camaraderie that fellows are experiencing. Like Nyan was saying, like the the gung-ho, like, hey, I got this. I can actually help somebody, cure somebody, save somebody's life. And, and the idea that all of us are coming together during this really difficult time. And we hope that that was some of the answers about why people were enjoying nephrology again, 
rather than just seeing some of the dark sides of nephrology. Well, and let's not pretend, I mean, despite the horrendous things that have happened and are, are still happening in parts of the world, there was good things that came out of this, right? I think about my own practice and, and telemedicine has been just this huge boon for, for patients. I mean, out here in, in Seattle, I mean, we see people that used to fly in from Alaska just to see us for a, a 30 minute clinic visit. And now we can do this when the patients are at home. And so there's been a lot of free conferences. I mean, there's been a lot of good that's come out of this. Table six, overall quality of life, definitely down, which is interesting since people were pretty happy and not burned out, still dropping the quality of life. That seems pretty significant. And then family relationships up. So this was something I thought was interesting. We asked fellows, how many of you were redeployed from nephrology to another specialty. And it was a very small minority, about 10% or so, who were redeployed from nephrology to another specialty. I'm actually one of the 47 who replied, yes, I was redeployed. I was taken from research nephrology world, which was shut down during the first three months to become an ICU doctor for the month of April and moved out of our house and lived in a dorm and took care of sick ICU patients at night. So for me, during that time, my family relationships were a whole lot worse. So I felt like that was a weird response to that question. I think we didn't have a lot of demographic information on our fellows who were responding to the survey about their family structures. And it's hard to map those responses onto the individual fellows' family situations. So for someone who's living on their own in a new city and has more time at home to stay in touch with family members by FaceTime or by other hangout options, that may be a better family relationship. But for a couple of people who are moving to the garage or spending more time at work or doing other things that may be a very significantly worse family relationship. So, Or have kids and their schools closed and they're like, what do I do about childcare? Yeah. So I spent a month as a kindergarten teacher before I spent a month as an ICU doctor. It's a, the weirdest transition in the world. I would not recommend going from kindergarten to doctor. And the kindergarten teacher is way harder than the ICU doctor. It's so much harder. Oh my goodness. It is. I would take ICU doctor 10 times out of 10. <laughs> Curtis, one of the things that you guys clearly worked really hard on was controlling all the data for the cumulative number of cases. That just sounds like a tremendous amount of work. But I don't remember reading a lot about that in the results. Did that, did that pay off? Well, we didn't actually look at it in terms of cumulative. You did relate the time that they filled out the survey to the amount of disease hospitalizations at that time. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So unlike the original figure one, which was cumulative cases as of the day that the survey was disseminated, I went back and thanks to the COVID tracking project, was able to aggregate the number of hospitalized patients in each state per epidemiological week and aggregated that against who completed the survey during that time frame. And we saw that the people that were providing care in states that had a high percentage of hospitalized patients across each of those epidemiological weeks, there were people that were responding in those states as well as states that were relatively low in terms of hospitalizations. So, which was reassuring in the fact that we were hopefully getting a representative sample among those that were in the thick of it, as well as well as those that were currently ebbing. Did you see a difference in those types of responses from those two different populations, ebbing and versus in the thick of it? That's a good question. We didn't look at that. I'll turn that over to Steve just to 
touch on that? So I think one of the reviewers for asking that question, because I think some of those were important questions. And so we did try to provide some of that more granular data there. You know, what we can take from this is that, yes, there were some regional variations, but largely the main findings that we pre presented in the main portion of the paper are largely the same as what our supplemental findings are. Is, is, and, and again, that's somewhat comforting that our fellows, even though they were experiencing this at different times, were having approximately the same experiences of telehealth or conferences. And, and I think one of the most positive findings that we saw is that even during this time of one of the most difficult training experiences, 84% of our fellows said that their education was maintained during this pandemic. And so even though they were experiencing difficulties, they're maintaining education. And again, like we said, their perceptions of nephrology as a potential career also were maintained, if not more robust than in past years. Did y'all do any analysis of the free text responses? I'll take this one. We deliberately restricted the number of open-ended questions that we asked people, and this was a deliberate response to reduce the survey burden for the respondents and hopefully increase the response rate at the same time. So there were some questions, but there wasn't enough data to do qualitative analysis, and that wasn't, uh, that wasn't within the scope of our research. Okay. The other paper that we looked at for the NFJC summary was a UK nephrology workforce, and they did do an analysis of the free text responses. But as you mentioned, their response rate was much lower. And so I wonder if you guys did a good service by limiting that so that you could increase the response rate. We also had great incentives of an electronic board review course where you can hear all these great lectures about how to prep for boards and, and registration for Kidney Week Reimagined, which again, would have been cooler in San Diego, but we can all live with it being online for a year. But I think I think that the deliberate choice to go with yes, no, and click box questions as opposed to fill on this large text box, we all know what that feels like to see that text box and we all close that window and move on to the next thing. There was no incentive for the other survey. Okay, let's try to wrap this up. Sure. Is, is, is there other big thing? Are there, do have we hit all the big big parts of this study? The last thing I would want to talk about here is Table Two, which is a breakdown by demographics. I think in these categories we do see groups that are probably at higher risk of burnout. Those are groups that include women, that include Black people, South Asians, Hispanics, and although none of those meet statistical significance. Those are groups that we know face significant challenges in everyday life before there is a pandemic, face even more challenges in the setting of a pandemic, and probably face even more challenges on top of those in the setting of providing care and learning during a pandemic. And so just really to have our program directors and our infrastructure attuned to support those individuals and fellows, especially during what is, like Steve had said, the most challenging training environment we've ever had. Okay, Steve, do you want to give us kind of a wrap-up summary of what you guys uh, found? Sure. So yeah, this was a really difficult time for our fellows, difficult time for all of our training program directors. And I think, you know, us asking them to fill out a survey is obviously not the ideal time for this, but you can see the results of this really do have implications for not only understanding their training experience, but planning for if or when the next challenge comes in front of them. And and I think that this really does show that nephrology is flexible. Nephrology is supportive of the educational experience, flexible in, in dealing 
with online materials, whether it's videos or telehealth, maintaining the educational curriculum. And like Josh said earlier, having a higher board pass rate than we've seen in a couple years. And so nephrology clearly is doing something right. And we hope that the percent that are satisfied with nephrology as a career will be maintained in the surveys that we ask going forward. So we're looking forward to the spring fellow survey, which was just released. So if any fellows are listening to this podcast or program directors, please fill out your fellow survey because uh, we really could use some longitudinal results to see whether these results are replicated or whether we're sliding back. And I hope it's the former that these results are replicated and that we can move our field of nephrology forward. So are you keeping the well-being questions on the survey? Yeah. So we're asking that yet again this year to see how things have progressed during this pandemic. Um, and again, hopefully there's not more burnout like Josh was suggesting earlier, uh, that fellows in the end of their year are more burned out. We hope that the low burnout rate that we saw or, or low distress rate that we saw early in the course is going to be maintained that hopefully that rate is not increasing. Jade, you're an associate program director. Do you read this and what did it make you think of in terms of things that you want to do in your fellowship? I I think I agree with what Nyan said. It really helped us kind of move our move forward and use the technology we already had. We had started recording some lectures because we have our fellowship across multiple hospitals so they could have access to the conferences. So using this live virtual streaming really helped us bring our fellows together. And I'm hoping that's something I don't see why we wouldn't continue doing it. It's been very helpful to allow our fellows to get into more conferences. And we're pairing with other institutions. We're attending conferences that are across the country, and that's been very helpful. And I think I've had more interest from the fellows. I, I have a peritoneal dialysis clinic and they're coming to visit more and showing more interest in home therapies. And I love that as well. Josh, you're the only fellow in this group. Did you fill out your survey, by the way? You know, I haven't gotten my survey yet in my email, so I will talk to my program director about that. First of all, I want to put in a plug for the Workforce and Training Committee, which I think is a great place for fellows or anyone interested in workforce issues to really contribute to understanding our current and future workforce and really shaping how we understand the future of that workforce. I was able to join the committee as an intern for ASN, which I think applications are in the fall. So folks can keep an eye out for that if they're interested in being part of an ASN committee. You really get treated like a full member. And Stephen Curtis and everyone else has been really great about pulling me in for all these kind of fun projects. From a perspective as a fellow, I want to say the caveat that most of my job is in a research lab. So I'm not inpatient 11 out of 12 months like I used to be. So my pre-pandemic burnout level was a lot better than a lot of people. I think being redeployed and having to take care of these really sick people and see everything else that was going on in our society as a whole was really hard. It's weird to go to work and take care of really sick people and then leave work and have people question whether those sick people exist. And I think that whole thing is really hard for all of us. I'm seeing a lot of eye rolls that none of the people who are listening to us can see, but I think we've all experienced that frustration. You know, it's not like people doubt that pneumonia exists or heart failure exists or kidney failure exists. And this has just been a really weird time in, in that respect. I think we all see the value of what we do. We all see that we help keep people alive and survive things that they couldn't survive without our help. And that is incredibly rewarding and incredibly heartening and, and encourages people who are excited about the things our specialty can do to keep doing those things within our specialty. Nyan, do you have any final thoughts? You know, I just wanted to take a minute while we're doing this. You know, I have a lot of family in, in India, which is 
obviously just getting ravaged by this virus and and just like the US they're not immune to misinformation so i just wanted to say thank you to the physicians and other public health personnel that are out there providing education battling misinformation and and we know personally folks in those roles that have suffered verbal abuse and even death threats during this because of how politicized things have become. And so my only thing here is to just say thank you and tip my hat to, to those folks that are out there. And, and then you may not know it, but every person you convince is potentially a life saved. So so thank you. Curtis, what, any other final thoughts on, your, on the study here? Yeah, I would just like to express my thanks to all of the nephrology fellows who have participated and whether they participate or not. I, I know that this has been an incredibly challenging time for all physicians and healthcare providers, but I, I am grateful for those who have taken the time to share their insights, to contribute to this research that we're conducting to help them and the next generation nephrologists. And, and Curtis won't say this, so I will. Please fill out your survey for this year so we can find out more about you and help adapt the next generation of nephrology fellows. Yeah. I guess my final thought is that we're not we're not done with this. And the events of last April and sp- uh, last spring of 2020 were so dramatic, it wouldn't surprise me if there are latent effects, psychological effects that are going to emerge later down the road. I mean, honestly, these these poor residents and fellows, they saw, they saw more people die in a couple of months than I saw in my entire residency. It really was a, a brutal, a brutal time to have to go through and provide care. And I, I just think it's going to be a scar on everybody's psychology forever. And so, I mean, I think these these results are really heartening and I hope that this is what we're going to actually see, but I'm, I'm worried. Okay, on that that light note. Oh, I thought we could at least do like a pick me up with like things that we really enjoyed tubular secretion kind of thing. Okay, do you? Okay, Josh, what's your tubular secretion? Sure. So I got cut off last time from doing a tubular secretion, so I'm saving this one in the tank for this one. No, you you piggybacked on a different tubular secretion. That's, that's that was your own co-transport. <laughs> See, that's totally different. See, jo- Josh, we we brought the editor in here, and he's he's not going to let he you get away with that stuff. He just chopped me. I I felt so. <laughs> you know. I am not as good of a reader as I should be, and I don't read for fun as much as I should. But I read a wonderful book that I wanted to recommend to people. It's called Why Fish Don't Exist by Lulu Miller, who's a reporter for NPR who runs Invisibilia and Radiolab. And I think we're all used to the idea from Fish to Philosopher, the Homer Smith classic that is really a foundational text in nephrology. The idea of why fish don't exist is kind of an interesting compliment to that. This is actually a story that starts out as a biography of the taxonomist David Starr Jordan, who lived in the late 19th and early 20th century and categorized hundreds and thousands of species of fish. And she tells this great historical survey of him. Her writing is incredibly funny and really fun to read. And she brings great both historical perspective and biology perspective to it. She also turns the book into more of a memoir about her individual struggles with her own mental health, with her relationship with her father, with understanding how she understands science as a discipline. And it ends up with discussion of why fish as a whole biological category doesn't make any sense at all, and that it's not backed up as a category by evolutionary biology or our understanding of genetics as it stands today. And I think after the whole Neff Madness, seahorse, hagfish 
craziness that went down. It was nice to read a really great book about biology, history, and fish. And I just thought this was a great read. And it's a really great audiobook if folks like listening to us. She's a much more interesting listen than me. Steve, do you have a tubular secretion? Probably not something that people, other people can enjoy, but today was my daughter's eighth birthday. So happy birthday to Amy. I was happy birthday, really Amy. Happy That's birthday. Great. Outstanding. Yes. Happy How, you said she's eight years old now? She's eight. Really happy to have some cake and ice cream with with my vaccinated parents as well. So oh, that's, that's awesome. great. Is that, is that is that third grade, fourth grade? What is she in? Uh, third grade. Third grade. Nice. Jade, you have tubular secretion? Being put on the spot, I will go back to the teachers. It happens to be Teacher Appreciation Week. And after doing virtual kindergarten, I have an even greater appreciation for what our teachers do. So just a shout nice. out to all the teachers, not only from kindergarten to grade school, but many of us as well. And Curtis, do you have a tubular secretion? I was at the CSV Conf 6 earlier this week and had the opportunity to hear an amazing keynote by Khadija Fairman, who is a PhD in New York, who looks a lot at the intersection of race and health. And she gave an incredible, incredible keynote on race in health data matters. And, And she touched on EGFR, among other, other topics. It was fantastic. So my tubular secretion is, I I tweeted this tonight, it's raining podcasts. So Nyan and I are working together on a podcast called Let's Lime. It's not, it's more than a podcast, but we, it's essentially, it's a, it's a YouTube video series, but we poured it over to a podcast. So our first guest on this was Kimberly Manning, who spoke about what she speaks about. And she was just absolutely brilliant, taking a lot of questions. Really, she's just a walking inspiration at Grady Doc on, on Twitter. And then we had Sharia and Adam Rodman from Core IM, and they also are running this thing. It's called IMED, and it is a digital education curriculum at, I want to say Beth Israel, or is it Harvard Medical School? And they are teaching the skills to do medical digital, digital education, and they spoke and and so this is now available on a podcast. We have a blockbuster third guest that'll be recording in June. And so this has been a pretty neat initiative. It's uh, LIME stands for Leaders in Medical Education, and it's it's off to a cracking start. And then the Nephrology Social Media Internship, where we train nephrologists and nephrology fellows to create this kind of faux med. Also, this year we started teaching them how to do podcasts and their first podcast dropped today. And so that's exciting. So and it's and a, Book Burton is coming out. Channel Your Enthusiasm this weekend. This weekend. Channel, well, channel Your Enthusiasm. Channel Your Enthusiasm. Chapter three is coming out soon. Chapter four is coming out soon. Who knows when this episode is going to get released? Who knows but when this plenty are in the can. Get excited. There's yeah, more yeah. Burton Rose in your future. Excellent. Thank and you. Just to be clear, and just to be clear, Lime is leadership and innovation and medicine and education. See, I don't even know what it stands for. I should be no, I, 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 I saw that. Oh so. my gosh. I'm, I'm so and it's, okay. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. This was great. 